Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. Welcome, everyone, to The American Idea. I'm your host, John Moser. I am professor of history and chair of the Department of History and Political Science at Ashland University. And, uh, of course, as a historian, I am uh, uh, I am concerned about the state of, uh, of the, the academic discipline we know as history. And uh, so when I encountered uh, first a book review and then later a more extended essay by today's guest i was sort of banging the table saying this is exactly <laughs> this is exactly what i think and i said i've got to i've got to have him as a guest on this show uh to uh, to get to to meet him and 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 talk more in depth about this uh our guest is johan neem he is professor and chair of the department of history at western washington university i'm no longer chair so well, good for you. Speaking yeah, as a chair, yeah. <laughs> I know so. how 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 nice it would be to hand over that response. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, Dr. Neem specializes in the history of the American Revolution and the early American Republic. His most recent book, "What's the Point of College: Seeking Purpose in an Age of Reform," was published by Johns Hopkins Press in 2019. He is also author of Democracy Schools, The Rise of Public Education in America, that was in 2017, and Creating a Nation of Joiners, Democracy and Civil Society in Early National Massachusetts, which came out in 2008. Dr. Neem is also Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia's Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. Dr. Neem, welcome. I'm so glad you're joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be here, John. So the essay that I am speaking of that really made me stand up and take notice uh, appeared in the summer 2022 edition of uh, the Hedgehog Review, which is the uh, which is the official journal of UVA's Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. And the title is A, Uni- a Usable Past for a Post-American Nation. Maybe we could start out just by having you say a few words about what inspired you to write this. Sure. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I'm excited to talk about it. So, you know, I'm sure the people who are listening know that we are in the midst of another round of the history culture wars as vitriolic and bitter and as they've ever been. And I felt two things. I felt something was different this time um, about these culture wars. And I thought, what could it be? And the, and the second thing I thought was I didn't want to write a piece to just try to take a side in the history culture wars, but try to understand what is at stake and what is going on at a deeper level. And as I looked into the wars, the history culture wars, and particularly what's changed um, among the left in those culture wars, um, and we could talk a little bit about the right as well, but what's changed among the left, the thing I noticed was increasingly there was a tendency 
to move toward what I call a post-American perspective. And so there was a deeper change that was not just how do we tell the American story, but the question seemed to be, how do we get beyond the American story? Mm. And to me, that was at least something different and something I wanted to capture in the essay. Hmm. So we, we, we've moved beyond America, or the term you use, post-American. Can you tell us more what you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, so what I mean by post-American is that I think for a large group of historians, um, but also uh, K-12 educators and, and the educators of teachers um, in education schools, there was a kind of giving up on the American project um, and, and, a, and a kind of and a conclusion that most of American history is a lie because it whitewashes the past. Mm. And this is not, as most, I think, Americans would agree, um, across political persuasions because America has a very deep history of racism. I think we know that's true. Um, but because America, by definition, is a racist society. And so once we've defined it as such, there's nothing salvageable about the American story. And so there was a sense that we just have to move beyond American history. But to the extent that history also defines a people and defines the stories we hand down and, and constitutes us as a people, that also means, I think, not just moving beyond a particular interpretation of American history, but if you move beyond American history itself, you're actually trying to move beyond America to mm. something new. And so there was a culturally revolutionary kind of aspect to this post-American perspective. And I think it's that that makes it not anti-American, but post-American, a kind of moving beyond. Okay, that's a, that's a very interesting distinction. I think about, for example, how... Uh, civil rights leaders such as Martin Luther King Jr. made his uh, made his appeals on the basis of the principles of the Declaration of Independence, for example. Yet now we are more likely to hear uh, hear it said among advocates for civil rights that the whole Declaration of Independence itself is the problem. That's right. Okay. That's right. That's right. And so it's it's a kind of reducing the whole story. To, to the fact that all of these, all of these things in American past are actually covers for American racism, or don't have other aspects that we can pull out, as Martin Luther King did, and say there is something here for all of us. Yeah. yeah. Are there any examples that you'd like to cite? Well, I mean, I think the most notable version, of course, the one I one I discuss in the essay is the sixteen nineteen project, and. What I, I describe that as an effort to create a new founding narrative for a post-American nation. And I think I do so because what the 1619 Project does is not just center Black history or explore the role of Black Americans in expanding American democracy, both of which I think are necessary and good things to do, but actually suggests that the whole American story is corrupt from the beginning, that mm -hmm. as of 1619, racism was the defining feature of American history. It has been the defining principle of action for white Americans. And there's a kind of reducing everything to that fact. And as a result, white America becomes simply something to overcome. Um, Black Americans, in a sense, become a hero to overcome it. 
And in the 1619 Project narrative, we, we are ending up somewhere beyond then, right? We need to get beyond, beyond ourselves, beyond America. And, and I think there are other examples out there of how historians or educators have tended to simplify. One might think about how do we tell the story of Puritanism, for example, and the Puritan settlers and Thanksgiving, right? And there's multiple layers of meaning in, in the pilgrims and Thanksgiving, in the Puritans coming to Massachusetts Bay, one of which, which should not be denied, is that they were, they were taking indigenous land, what, what historians call settler colonialism. But there are other stories embedded in that. Thanksgiving wasn't invented in Massachusetts. It's a longstanding tradition by which a people give thanks for good fortune um, that has power beyond that moment. Um, but also, people were coming for lots of reasons. They were coming as religious refugees. They were coming to found idealistic societies as models for the old world. They were also taking Native American land. And so these stories, the complexities, the richness of, of human action is reduced in, these, in this effort to overcome American history. Right, right. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, and, and I have to think of, of some of the response to the 1619 Project, and I think this may be something that you bring up in the more recent book review, uh, that, that even those who recognize that there are errors in the 1619 project say it doesn't matter essentially because it's the because it's the framing that's important more even than the particular facts yeah and that's an important point right because professional historians have a an important but tense relationship to any nation state that they study but certainly their own um, which is simultaneously to correct distortions of the past and certainly correct um, misinformation about the past, but also to recognize that we live in a society that needs common stories. And I think one of the things, you're, as you're suggesting, is the hesitancy of historians to criticize the 1619 Project the way they might do with some narratives coming from the right is reflective of a desire to construct a kind of new national narrative or a post-American national narrative. Mm -hmm. And certainly then... Once we have stories, we can fit the facts in as they belong. Um, and so there's something larger at stake than the particular facts or distortions of one, one um, New York Times piece. And I think that's right, right? It's about the framing of, of how we tell the history of the past few centuries, um, the colonial period, and then the development of the United States, right? Sure. I, I would like to get get into the backlash against this movement, but... Where do you think this uh, this whole post-America movement has come from? You seem to suggest it's a fairly recent development. What, has there have there been any particular triggers that you can point to? Oh yes, I mean I think I mean I think first off I think there's a long intellectual gestation for this post-American moment. So I think. What we tend to do is say, and I think this is not entirely incorrect, that um, the killing of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement was a kind of wake-up call to a lot of educators and scholars. And I think there's some truth to that, that this was a moment where there, people said, we need to really engage in honest racial reckoning. Um, but I think the ideas have a longer, deeper 
um, roots in how we think about diversity, how we think about pluralism, how we think about the about the relationship between um, the races in America. I mean, all of these pieces um, have have conversations that go back to the '80s, to the '70s, to the mm-hmm. '60s. And and they've developed slowly. So you have these deeper intellectual currents meeting a moment. And I think they both matter. It didn't come out of nowhere, in other words. And yeah. and then I think the third part is we have to be honest that this is a society that still has a racial problem. And mm-hmm. there's huge racial inequalities in American society. So I think the anger and frustration that was unleashed doesn't come out of nowhere. It also has deep roots in our society. Mm-hmm. People are upset for a reason. Maybe we should turn to the other side of the coin. Uh, this movement toward a post-American nation has not gone gone unchallenged, of course. Um, how has that backlash, for want of a better term, manifested itself? Sure. I mean, on the extremes, you know, I think we have seen the emergence of white nationalism, moments like Charlottesville and things like that. But I don't think that's the mainstream. Um, response, I think most Americans, um, and certainly most conservatives, have a more nuanced response to it, which is not a denial of American racism um, or the violence of America's past, but really a desire to see the nation also as something worthy of celebration. And if we think about what a nation is, right, it's not just the institutions, it's not just the government, it's not just the constitution. It's, it's a whole set of, it's a cultural entity. Hmm. And so if you're, if you're a member of any tribe, and the Americans are no exception, and you imagine handing down that, that national inheritance to the next generation, that doesn't mean you want to deny what America has done wrong or what America can do better or, or resist you know, um, what, what are called divisive ideas, but it does mean you also want people to find something to celebrate, to take pride in, to feel good about, you know? And so I think that some of the response has been a sense that students in K-12 schools or universities aren't getting that other side. Mm. And, and I think that's also a mistake of the left. The truth is always the bad things, as if truth doesn't ever have any good things, you know? Historical history is complex, and there's good and bad always mixed in with the past. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to take a moment and ask you to learn a little more about the Ashbrook Center and how you can help us continue our work with teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chad Kiefer, Director of Philanthropy and Strategic Partnerships here at Ashbrook. At its heart, America's story is about the lives of patriots who have given their last full measure of devotion to preserve and protect what it means to be an American. But the tragic truth is that the American story is being rewritten as one of oppression and despair. Back in 1776, the founders took a chance when they created a new government built on principles of liberty. They took a chance on America. Now I'm challenging you to do the same. Your gift to Ashbrook today reaches students, teachers, and citizens across the country, helping them to understand why America is worthy of their devotion. With so many forces eroding our history and taking away from our principles, isn't it time we give America a chance? 
Your investment is encouraged now more than ever. Please visit us today at ashbrook.org backslash support. Yeah, this this is uh, really a fascinating development, I think, because when I look back on the on, for example, the 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 liberalism or even the left, right? If you define that as 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 left of center, even even socialism, maybe not communism, but there was always this 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 patriotic sense about it, right? That we are not living up to our uh, we're not living up to our ideals. But, are, but the ideals are essentially good, and that's something that 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 seems to be lost. And if, 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 if as you so so aptly describe, has created this defensive posture on the right that wants to dismiss any kind of criticism of the United States. Yeah, at its extreme, that's wrong too, right? Of course, because. Mm-hmm. We can't develop thoughtful, critical citizens if we are unwilling to criticize ourselves. Self-criticism is necessary for people and as individuals, but also as a nation. Um, But it has led to a defensiveness, right? Um, There was a recent story in the New York Times, I believe, about the expansion of school choice, for example. And a parent said, "Why why are you opting out? And he said, well, my kid came home and said all these horrible things about Christopher Columbus, much of which is true and also should not be denied. But he said, the problem is that's the only thing he learned about Columbus, right? He never learned anything else. And I think that kind of reductiveness, that, that, that the past is simply a place where Americans and particularly Euro-Americans have, have imposed horror on others, has created a defensive response, right? And it's easy to dismiss that as racism, but when we do polls of Democrats and Republicans, the vast majority of Republicans want American students to learn the history of American racism. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think it's based in a denial that we live in or have lived in a society that has the problems of racism. I think it's a desire to have a richer story that also acknowledges there's more to it than that, or it's not just that. Um, and that our kids can leave school sometimes feeling good about their country mm-hmm. too. Yeah, uh, just th- this may be a minor point, but 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 it's one that interests me. You mentioned in your essay the White House Conference on American History, which issued the 1776 report. This was under the uh, the Trump administration issued its 1776 report, which was something uh, purported to be something of a rebuttal to the 1619 project. You say that this was quote not so much making a historical argument as simply evading history. Could you say more about what you mean by that? Sure, sure, sure. Um, I think, you know, first off, there were very few historians involved in the drafting of the 1776 um, report, right? But as a response to the 1619 uh, project, I think one of the things that the 1776 commission argues is that America stands for eternal truths. I mean, this is a kind of platonic anti-historicist argument. And these eternal truths were somehow espoused by our founding fathers. And whether that is true or not, I'm not taking a position. Maybe these truths are eternal and immutable and self-evident. Um, and maybe they're not. But for, for a historian, that's not how you teach history, right? You teach history through the people doing things in the past 
articulating ideas in the context of a complex revolution. You know, the Declaration of Independence had to do multiple things. Yes, the first paragraph lays out some beautiful principles about equality and liberty, but it also had to make a geopolitical case for independence to bring in European support. It also had to mobilize Americans. So it does refer, for example, to the role of the king in inciting slave rebellion and and turning indigenous people, um, Native Americans, against um, the colonists. And so it's a document that does multiple things. And a historical approach sort of tries to understand what was going on and what are these multiple registers of meaning in something and doesn't presume ideas just get plopped down and then don't get touched by history. You know, mm -hmm. Martin Luther King had also was a universalist, but his story of American history was more, you know, about an unfolding of people acting in time. Mm -hmm. And I think the 1776 commission in many ways ignores that time, that idea of time. So it's, I don't think by, I think it's purposeful to be, it's an anti-historicist document. Yes. Oh, great. That, 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 that makes, that makes perfect sense. Thank you. Um, I want to try to relate this controversy and your commentary on it to the situation with academic history in general right now. Okay. Anybody who is anybody in the discipline now has got to be concerned. The, the numbers of history majors has been dropping precipitously. Although I, I should add, we don't seem to be having that problem in Ashland. We've got more history majors now than ever. I'm not sure why, but okay. We'll leave this happy, my my happy exception yeah. to the side. We're, um, we're in a similar place, actually, at Western Washington. Very, we have not lost history majors. Yeah. yeah. But but certainly the national trend is, uh, is for falling numbers. And all, you hear all, all, all sorts of stories about schools even uh, el eliminating their history departments, which is something that would have been unthinkable yeah, it's mind-boggling. Yeah. Do you see that as related to the developments that you comment on in this essay? I don't really think so, to be honest. You know, I don't think so. I think when I think about my students um, and students in general, I think they're excited about lots of things. Um, I think there is a problem in the way academic historians um, tend to be um, ideological and share the same politics. And I don't think that's good for our students. Um, even if I share some of those politics, I don't think it's good for our students. Uh, but I don't necessarily know that is the cause. I think that the bigger causes have to do with things like, um, I think the bigger causes have to do with things like meta narratives that say college education is for jobs, not mm -hmm. for, not for a liberal education. And Students, to some extent, hear that, right. or that the future is STEM, or colleges catering to students' needs by providing, for example, the business major, which is a kind of general major that evades all the general education of the liberal arts and sciences. Why do you need that? Um, students will do just as well with math or English in the business world. Um, and so I think part of it is catering to those preferences. I think some schools, yours, you know, Yale recently redid their history major and it's one of the top majors at Yale, but it's not because they got rid of anything kind of critical or left. It's because they created mm -hmm. multiple themes and pathways. Um, at Western, I think part of the reason we have maintained our history major is that our administration didn't defund and reallocate lines elsewhere. So you continue to have good energy and multiple classes and multiple ways for students to meet different kinds of faculty. 
and learn about history and what history could be exciting. Because I think students also come in, even if they have pre, pre-existing notions, they're, they're open to, to being excited and turned on by a subject. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think it's as simple as that, mm-hmm. although I do think it's a problem that the history profession has moved in a direction, in a kind of common direction that's made it more ideological, made it more less open. Um, you know, the, so I don't want to, but I don't know that the two are the necessarily related. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, it seems as though in, among the general public, history has not lost any of its appeal. I mean, you know, Oppenheimer, the success of, of Oppenheimer. Oh, I know. That's great. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that's beating Barbie. It may not be. But, but you know, even, it is. even if it isn't, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, it's doing quite well and has become something of a, of a phenomenon. So, so there is, there is, there's certainly public interest there. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the question, and, and I don't know how many, you've probably encountered the same thing, uh, spoken with um uh, people who are you know, who are middle aged, and you say, "Well, what what do you do?" I'm, I teach history. I'm a professor of history, and they say, "You know, I always hated history yep. when I was 20 years old, but now I'm fascinated with it." Um, what has the response been to your essay? It's been about a year now since it since it came out. Has it been mostly positive, or what criticism have you gotten? Yeah, I mean, it's been mixed. Um, I I've received some positive criticism. I think, I mean, some positive feedback. I think one of the things I really tried to do in that essay is not be partisan, right? Mm -hmm. And I tried to say, what is going on? You know, clearly I do speak from a position where I, I think we're missing something or we're taking some misdirections. But I try to point out that, that, you know, the moment we're in is simultaneously this moment of a sort of a post-American movement, but we're also seeing um, the emergence of white nationalist violence and things like that, that this is a complex moment. And what I find in that essay is that what, what many on the cultural left and many on the white nationalist right share is this idea that America is a story for and about white people. And as a brown-skinned immigrant, I just don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. Even though I know that until 1965, people like me were not citizens. I think the opening up of America is a very major and important thing. There has been a lot of criticism. You know, people, people, uh, my colleagues have criticized it from multiple perspectives. Um, some have said that I've misread the 1619 Project, that it's not doing this post-American work that I think it's doing. Um, there's always people who have a sense that I'm engaging in both sidesism. You know, yeah. that that um, the real threat comes from the right. And so, so why are we focusing on, you know, the problems of the left? My response to that is partly because a lot of my colleagues are doing a good job pointing out what's wrong with the right. Yeah. Um, and a less effective job point, pointing, looking in the mirror at ourselves. But also, I think when you have, um, when, the left, for lack of a better term, has control of universities and public schools. They have power. Maybe not. That's maybe that's not doesn't mean they have all the power. We're a divided society. Um, Republicans have a lot of state houses and state legislatures, but there is power in owning or or having huge influence over the places where um, young people's hearts and minds are formed. And 
if to the extent that a kind of shared ideology is shaping that or reshaping those places, we should be attentive to that as a form of power. Hmm. Is there uh, anything else that you would you would like to add on this subject? This is a fascinating conversation, and I uh, I, I hesitate to cut it short. I you know I just I I feel thankful for the chance to share my ideas with you, um, and I hope that those who are listening um, respond to my appeal to to take a step back from the kind of rhetorical extremes of our partisan culture wars and try to understand some of the deeper issues at play. At the same time, I guess I do want to leave by saying, at least when we're talking about how we teach and write about American history, I think to the extent that the extremes have the floor, whether it's the extremes from the right or the extremes from the left, most of us lose. Because when we see poll results, most Democrats agree that we should celebrate people like Washington and Lincoln, and most Republicans agree we should tell the truth about slavery and racism in vast majority of both parties. That I think most Americans want a story of America that's honest, but that's honest, that's critical, but that also leaves space for pride and something to feel patriotic about. Mm. And that's shared across the political divide. And if we focus on the loudest voices and, our, and what the media likes to share, we'll lose sight of actually the fact that we, you know, even if we disagree on some of the particulars of our American story, we actually share a lot of ground. Mm. And, and it's, it's a shame to me that that shared ground isn't where, where the center of attention is. It's not just that Americans want this, although, of course, it's good that they want this kind of history. It's what they need the history profession to, pro to, to provide, right? As you say, this, this sense of, of uh, uh, these, these cultural ideas that, under, that undergird who we are, or to use William McNeil's term, which you cite in here, myth history. I think that's right. We're a people, and a people has shared stories. And if we come to the point where either side or both sides cannot share a common story for reasons legitimate or illegitimate, the stakes are very high because then we can't see ourselves as a people. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have a responsibility to offer public stories that are honest and truthful, but also help constitute us and as an American people. And... And I think that's really important. That's the, one of the cultural functions of history, certainly at the K-12 level. So, Well, uh, Jonathan, uh, sorry, Johan Neem, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. This has been a fascinating discussion. I, 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 my next step is to look, uh, look up uh, what's the point of college, what you said about... Uh, oh, I'd, loved, I'd love to talk to you about that. Has, yeah. has made me very interested. But uh, our subject... Today, for those of you who want to check out the essay, uh, again, it's titled A Usable Past for a Post-American Nation, uh, and that's found online, easy to, find, easy to track down, uh, uh, the summer 2022 issue of the Hedgehog Review. Once again, thank you. I want to thank all of our guests for, for joining us. And if you are uh, as interested in history as Dr. Neem and I both are, uh, I hope you will take a deeper look into his and into his work and watch this space for future podcasts. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a real pleasure.
likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.